Good evening, and welcome to the greatest science fiction film tournament podcast from Bureau42.com. I am your host, Alexander Case, and joining me today... David Stark! <laughs> ah, now that we've got that silliness out of the way... Yeah. We are... It's October, we're doing our month of horror films, and today we are starting off with a horror anime... Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri, who anime fans may also recognize as the director of uh, Ninja Scroll, and who we've talked about previously in the Animatrix um, podcast, where he did one of the shorts there. And also, based on the long, very long-running series of novels, all all in the Vampire Hunter D. series, Try to get the the author's name here. Uh, Hideyuki Kikuchi. Thank you. And this is kind of a weird duck when it comes to anime, in that this is a anime film that was made for the U.S. first. Uh, this is done well before Animatrix, well before Halo Legends, well before uh, Batman Gotham Knight were made. However, it's based off a of Japanese. However, unlike those franchises where well, films where they're made off. Western properties, American properties, Batman, The Matrix, Halo. This is made off a Japanese novel series as a sequel to a film that was made in Japan first. Fifteen years earlier. Yeah, fifteen years <laughs> earlier, no less. And also, speaking of big names involved in this, we have the character designs for this, or other original character designs by Yoshitaka Amano, who video game fans will remember as the person who did the character designs for the Final Fantasy games, at least the first nine of them. So, um... Might will talk about how our first exposure to this to this film. Um, this is actually the first film in the Vampire Hunter D franchise that I've seen. I'd seen, yeah, I, I'd heard the series, I'd read stuff about the series, uh, but I had not actually seen it anything about it myself beforehand. I saw the DVD in a blockbuster video back when those were things that existed. And in the bargain bin, we're selling, we're clearing this out section where where they had the stuff that people had turned in for in store credit and the movies that had gotten a bit too long in the tooth to make any money off it, and picked it up for dirt cheap, which is probably a double steal now. Now that the movie is currently out of print, Um, I took it home, was absolutely stunned by the gorgeous visuals in this movie, and kind of made me a fan of the whole Vampire Hunter D franchise ever since. David? Um, I actually was a fan of the original film, though more of a passing fan. It was one of those way back in like the 90s, uh, the Sci-Fi Channel showed anime movies at like midnight on Saturdays. So I always stayed up and I watched it, and that's where I first got to see the movie. And I really liked it, because it was dark, gothic, and really not like most things you've seen, in that... This was, it was shortly after, um, Anne Rice got really big because of, uh, Interview with the Vampire. This was a couple years after that. So all the vampires were these loving, you know, wonderful, terrible creatures of the night. And in Vampire Hunter D, they're monsters. They prey on the humans. It was like, oh, it's a wonderful take. Um, which got me interested in the series. Uh, actually, I've read the first 10 novels. And I actually got to see Bloodlust during its very, very limited theatrical release here in the U.S. And as soon as it came out on DVD, I picked it up. Ah. 
it bears mentioning. Um, this is, as I mentioned, this is based on a very long series of novels. Unlike Macross, do you remember Love from last time? You can find these novels. They are in print. Yeah. Most of the series has been, we're not, we're not like 100% current, but much of the series has been translated into English and published in the, uh, published by, uh, Dark Horse, uh, and they're not, and their books division, uh, which they basically kind of started up just for Vampire Hunter D. And so you can, so even if this movie, even if you can't find this movie, because it is out of print, it was released by Urban Vision Entertainment, which was actually kind of sprung up from the ashes of what was the company that Carl Masick started after he left? Oh, um, hmm. yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, it's after he left <clears throat> the. Boy, name's just falling out of my head like rain today. Harmony Gold? Yeah, after he left Harmony Gold, uh, he started a another anime licensing and distribution company. They're the ones who put out Akira Goat in the U.S. And then after he left them or something like that, he worked with Urban Vision for a bit and to help re-release some of their stuff, some of the old stuff that he'd done before. The stuff that hadn't been picked up by other companies. For example, Wicked City and the Golgo 13 movies and that sort of thing. Anywho, um, so the movie starts, uh, starts out in a very, very evocative fashion. The movie does a really great job of visual storytelling, of showing and not telling in really great ways. And there is no really bad example of this than with the movie's opener, which it's it's the kind of thing that if Hammer Films hadn't stopped existing for a while and resurrected later, if it kept going and had the same sort of success that companies like Universal or or, I mean, not so much United Artists, but Paramount and that sort of thing, uh, Warner Brothers, if, they, if it kept existing and been able to do even bigger budget horror films, this would be a kind of opening that Hammer might do in their first big budget Dracula blockbuster thing. It's it's like, it's like the most possibly iconic gothic horror image ever. It's a very, it's a town at night, the streets are abandoned, a carriage, a mysterious black carriage pulled by horses comes come tearing through the streets as it does all the crosses on the roofs of houses crinkle up and are and are destroyed trees and plants wilt and die water and fountains freeze it's just amazing and then we get the sort of iconic visual of have have charlotte the female i want to say damsel in distress because we, we find out because we find out later there's more to it than that but the one of the main female characters in bed, and then the window in her room comes open. Uh, the bouquet of flowers to her bed wilts. The, this vampire comes in, picks her up. We know it's a vampire because we see her being lifted in the mirror, but we don't, don't see the person lifting her. The guy whisks out and cue credits. Oh God, that uh... it's it's just a glorious introduction to this dark and gothic world we're seeing. And it's beautiful. Yeah, it's this like this opening bit shows everything about why Yoshiaki Kawajiri is an excellent director of animation in like about like three minutes of film. Because additionally, it's important to mention the Vampire Hunter D series is post-apocalyptic to a certain degree, post-post-apocalyptic. 
Yeah, there's, uh, it takes place roughly in the year, uh, 12,090. There have, uh, shortly after the year 2000, there was a nuclear apocalypse. And, uh, vampires sort of came out of the shadows and rebuilt society. And then there was a human uprising, and all the vampires got overthrown. Well, most of the vampires got overthrown. Um... This film's vampire, uh, Meyer Ling, or Meyer Link in the, not dub, but the English audio, <laughs> um, is actually one of the few that, uh, in the novel at least, uh, humans actually liked. He cared for his humans. So they were shocked when he absconded with this woman. But for the most part, vampires are just horrible monsters. <laughs> and we get into that when we get to the other major vampire in the movie a little later. And, but, but yeah, the, what the sets up great is that this movie, like immediately starts playing with your expect, uh, sort of playing with your expectations. Like for the of these first three minutes, the first one and a half of them, it looks like your standard gothic horror movie opening, more or less. But then we see the horses in the carriage, and they're cybernetic. And when you immediately go, oh, this is science fiction. We're in the future, and consequently, we get more. Uh, and it's sort of the thing here where you think things are one thing, and then you get a reveal where. The undercurrent underlying underneath is different than what you expected. We then get our kind of opening, not simply crawl, but a series of opening cards over the excellent theme for the movie by composer Marco D'Ambrosio, which is the kind of name for a person where it's like, that can't be his real name, but nope, it is. Uh, yeah. And it when we see the opening credits, it's not entirely, uh, at least the first time I saw it, I wasn't entirely sure what I was looking at until the very end of the movie where it's sort of revealed. It's a broken up gothic space station. <laughs> and it's one of, it's like all these Baroque um, architectural features and it's just floating in space. <laughs> and it, it bears mentioning that I'm not going to talk too much about the other Vampire Hunter D movie on this, though it's going to come up because the other vamp, well, yeah, the other Vampire Hunter D movie did not qualify. Or he wasn't even in the uh, uh, first round. Uh, so we can talk about it a little. I like the animation in an, animation and music in pretty much everything about the uh, Bloodlust kind of more than the first Vampire Hunter D movie. Not just because animation had progressed in between the two films. The score is much more evocative than the original film score did. And the direction is... Like, the animation direction... I get a sense, got a sense with the first movie that there's a lot of things they wanted to do and weren't able to do with the animation, and whether because of the craft of the animation studio doing it, which was uh, Studio Ashi, or whether it was a just other reasons. Probably best example is if you go online and look up pictures of D from this movie and D from the first OVA from the uh, original film, it is like night and day yeah this this one was much much closer to the original uh omino designs from the light novels to the point of looking at d he looks like he stepped off of omino's just illustration board whereas the first one was it really suffered from being made in the 80s um d has like all these straps on his body <laughs> his cape is just sort of there it's not really a character feature which it really becomes in this film where it's very evocative of the vampire wings most notably in his introduction shot <laughs> looking up to yoashi's previous work it's 
there's not that much like big action stuff here. It's like, oh, all-purpose cultural cat girl Nuku Nuku, which is a action comedy. It's oh. it's like the F Zero television series. It's oh the, God, there was one. It's the <laughs> Fairy Princess Minky Momo, which is a magical girl series. It's all this very general of the stuff that they were leads on and major animation studios on is generally much lighter fare than than Vampire Hunter D. Like the the, mo- the biggest sort of action non comedy thing I'm seeing on their show list is they did Macross Seven. They basically did all Macross Seven TV show OVAs film the works. Other than that, everything else they were kind of contributing to it. Like with, like they did some in between work um, and a little bit of key animation work on like Gundam Seed and Gundam Wing. But their most of this is like work for hire. It's they're they're helping out with somebody else's project. But the stuff where they're where they're in the lead, where it's their project, they're put they're they're spearheading this. It's light comedy, very stylized, and. While Vampire Hunter D is certainly also very stylized, it's in a much more dramatic, serious, gothic, atmospheric sense. And honestly, Studio Aishi, or Aishi Productions don't got it. At least not for much of their career. Yeah, they're, they're colorful, which is not what you want with a D movie. Yeah, whereas Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust is done by Madhouse, which is... When it comes to animation studios, they're kind of one of those names to know. They did Trigun. They did Ninja Scroll. They did... They've done uh, Demon City Shinjuku. They did... Oh, there's so much stuff. Like, most of the big-name anime OVAs from... uh, And and movies from the 80s and 90s, particularly stuff that would have ended up on, like, the Sci-Fi Channel on Saturday... uh, Either on Saturday nights or Saturday mornings were done by Madhouse. In fact, probably the biggest name work that Madhouse did is... I think the one that got even got Western recognition is they did Barefoot Gen, which, if you're not familiar with it, is a anime film, or pair of anime films based on a manga about surviving in the wake of the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima. Yeah. Just ask yourself, did I like it? Then it was probably Madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So... After the opening credits, we are then get our first look at D, and we kind of immediately get an understanding of how Dunpeels, or Dampfears, as what D is, are treated in society. Dunpeel is... Let's talk about this here. There are some weird translation things with this. Um, D is a half-human, half-vampire. In the dub, he is referred to as a Dunpeel. The technical term for this is Dampfear. Because you take a Balkan word, you turn it into Japanese, and then you bring it back to English. Pretty much. I forget, in the novels, do they do Dampfear, or do they... Yeah, it's the Dampfears. Okay. So this isn't like, oh, the official accepted term in the localization is Dunpeel, which occasionally happens. No, 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 this is just a case where somebody slipped up. Yeah, also, um, uh, the main vampire in the film, Meyer... Meyer Link in the du- in the English audio. Can't re- is it a dub if the audio if the English done one was done first? <laughs> we'll we'll call it the dub for for ease. <laughs> yes, for consistency. Yeah. Um. The, the dub he is called Meyer Link. In the original, he is called Meyer Ling. In a letter printed that we see him reading, he is called Meyer Ling. <laughs> <laughs> one word as opposed to two. So. Yeah. Uh. Uh. Yeah. 
D comes to the meet with the um, Elborn family, which is hire, hiring him to retrieve Charlotte. And we really see here D how Dom fears are treated by society, where basically we don't see D first. We see the guys with the guns waiting to kill D if he tries anything first. <sighs> then we see D come in. We have the we, we sort of have the meet, and we, we have this sense of tension to it. On the one hand, the uh, D's he's kind of just rolling with it, very passive, not making any aggressive motions. But all these sort of security people, all the snipers and ambushers, are scared out of their minds of him, and with good reason. He is a, a, a very tough person, as we'll see soon. <laughs> yes. We also get in this scene our first two big names in the movie. Well, kind of three. We have Andrew Philpot as English dub for D. Um, we have John Demita, who is the actor who plays the father, Alan Elborn. And then the younger, his oldest son, John, who does the majority of this talking in this scene, is played by John DiMaggio, who probably is best known to most um, people who watch animation in a variety as, oh, Bender from Futurama, among others. Jake the Dog, Adventure Time. Yep. If you've played Gears of War, he's Marcus Phoenix. Uh, he really hasn't done that much anime, but he's done... Uh, so, but he's done some big stuff, but he, he's a fairly big name. Uh, all things considered, it's here John Demita, a bit more experience and more stuff under his uh, belt. He's done uh, Techman or Technoman, depending on where you are, uh, depending on where you're watching it, because the English the version that have an English dub was released as Technoman. Pet Shop of Horrors, Andrew Andrew Pilpot, and those guys are ones where they're not in, like super long lists. But they're the stuff they've been on is fairly big, so we have this sort of meet between the two, and D heads out, and we're then immediately introduced to the Marcus family. Or they're not all totally related. They're mostly there's like four brothers and an adopted sister, pretty much. And again, it's another great example of of showing not telling that these guys are really competent bounty hunters. And vampire hunters. Oh, we're, we're in the earlier scene. We mentioned that when D's hired, that the that two teams were hired for the job. Uh, D and then the Marcus family. So D kind of rolls with this. Although generally, when this happens, when you're getting hired for a job, that's usually not a good sign. Yeah. Get... So the Marcus family is introduced, and they interested with them. Actually, not seeing them at all. Sort of like with uh, D, but in a different fashion. We see their vehicle first. They end up getting rolled in, up in a sort of vampire slash ghoul ambush. And yeah. they very competently fight their way out of it. And we kind of see each of the, most of their abilities. Not the younger brother, Grove. But we see um, kind of each of their, their roles in the thing. There's Borgoth, the leader, who also uses, I wouldn't call it a crossbow that he has on his arm. It's an arm-mounted, like, bow. Yeah, I'm... It's so it it's a crossbow, but instead of a stock, he, it's mounted straight onto his uh, right forearm. Yeah, armbow. I'm gonna call it an armbow. All right, armbow. That, that, that works. We have Kyle, who is the knife guy, uh, who both just uses knives in general and also can his knives apparently are also double as sort of boomerangs. There's Nolt, who uses a very massive wooden stake hammer thing, 
and there's Layla, who uses a really big handgun. And finally, there's Grove, whose ability we haven't seen yet, but we know he's kind of bedridden. We don't know why. Anyway, they get to this fight, they take out all these va all these vampires, and they hear somebody, a, a, a rider on horseback coming in. And Borgoth, not wanting to take any chances, carefully fires a shot with his arm bow, and we see it a very dramatic and awesome reveal, de-catch it in midair. Complete with, as David mentioned earlier, his cape kind of swooping up in the air behind him like the wings of a giant bat. And as he catches it, his horse just goes up on both hind legs. With the moon behind them. It's just... <laughs> it's amazing, but it still makes me chuckle because it's a little, it's a little over the top. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you get the gothic, architecturally designed space station in the opening credits... Okay, okay, okay. It's maybe not over the top for this film. Yeah. We, we've left the top very far behind, and we are now entering the realm of just of just rule of cool. Rule of yes. Now, I gotta say with the, for the um, acting here and the, the roles, Borgoth is a character for his mannerisms and, and the way he's played by actor Matt McKenzie. I feel like if they made a live-action version of this movie, he'd be the guy played by Ron Perlman. Yeah, yeah, it's... Have you seen um the second... I want to say the second Blade movie. Yes, I have. Yeah, it seems like they stole them. It seems like their team of, like, vampire hunters, who are vampires themselves, basically are mostly just taken from the Marcus brothers. Yeah. Because you got the guy with the big hammer with a stake in it. You got the tough guy. You got the smooth... You got the smooth guy. You got the girl. Yeah. Basically all there. <laughs> with the difference being that... In Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, the Marcus family gives as good as they get, pretty yeah. much. Yes. Whereas, and uh, Blade, Blade two, will get into this more when he gets to do the podcast for Blade 2, the Blood Pack kind of goes out like punks. Well, they're they're just the, they're the red shirt army. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I really think that the, the Marcus brothers, the way this movie oh, no. is written, they definitely do a better job of showing that the Marcus brothers were hired for this job for a good reason. They... Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying visually. Yeah, and vis sort of visually. Yeah, I, I agree. No, competency, the Marcus Brothers are way better. <laughs> They're, yeah, I mean, as it's stated, you can see why these people were hired. Yeah. And all I gotta say is thank God they were changed from the original novel. Yeah, well, I might as well get into that real quick. Yeah, in the novel, um, the Marcus Brothers are, um, in the film, they're normal humans who were just badass normal in the novel uh they're genetically uh enhanced um probably by uh the nobility which is to say the vampires possibly not it's not said but who else has the technology and their character they're they're basically the villains of the novel because they're very horrible people uh it's outright stated they regularly rape layla and possibly even the invalid grove yeah, they're the villains of the novel. There's, it's unambiguous about it. Uh, their change, their change for the film is much, much better. They're much more interesting characters in this. They're actual characters in this. They're not just straight up. Oh, look, humans can be monsters too, sort of thing. Because in the novel, it was very much the monstrous Marcus brothers and the noble Meyerling. Mm-hmm. So I love the movie about <laughs> this change. It's so much better. Yeah. 
also lead, uh, leads to the other big change between both the between this movie and both the novels and the first film is this next next sequence we get our first big chunk of dialogue with left hand. D has sort of a symbiote like organism in his left hand, which is creatively referred to in both the books and the movies as left hand. And with capitals though. <laughs> yes, with capitals. And he talks. In the books in the first movie, Left Hand is kind of more the voice of the devil on D's shoulder, of his more violent and darker impulses that come from the vampire side. Whereas in the move in Bloodlust, he's kind of more of a smart aleck. He quips he's not totally comic relief, though he kinda is. He he definitely brings a levity to it. I'm not sh- I wouldn't go as far as to say it's comic, but it definitely lightens the mood. Indeed, it kind of helps that left hand doesn't have a lot of lines where the face is on camera, so consequently the voice actor can improvise a lot and embellish and that sort of thing. So we kind of get this next scene here where we set up Lila's ind- independent streak and also kind of D's general no- kind of bigger knowledge of the nobility and how they work because of his, because of his part vampire side and him technically even in this business longer than than the Marcus family due to him being a damn fear. Yeah. Um, it's rarely stated because he, D doesn't really age much like at all, <laughs> but he is as stated in the novel and one novel, he is at least 5,000 years old. So he's been in this game longer than most vampires. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mentioned, they say it a little more later, but it's mentioned that he, that his, D's father is the vamp quote, vampire king. Or the progenitor, as he's in the novels, which basically they only explicitly say it, but it's Dracula. Not saying it's Dracula, it's Dracula. <laughs> yeah. In fact, they kind of wanted to kind of directly apply the novel in the first novel. Uh, the first novel is somewhat inspired by the actually that I mentioned Hammer Horror earlier for a reason. The first novel is kind of inspired by the various Hammer Dracula movies, and you can kind of see with. If you keep that in mind, that connection in mind, and you look at, like, Yoshitaka Amano's artwork, you could kind of see Amano kind of trying to go for a facial structure similar to a, a much younger Christopher Lee. To the point of the main vampire in the first novel is Count Lee. <laughs> yep. And the... And so we, we get this kind of great scene here where D is working kind of slowly, deliberately, to make his way in, to make his way into this um, sort of resting ha- vampire resting house, which is kind of a neat effect. It, it looks like a mirrored square cube, and uh, the, the credits say there were some CG effects in this. It's um, they don't use CG for the things they normally use CG in anime um, anime anymore, like vehicles and that sort of thing. So they use CG in this. My guess is it's for the um, uh, resting house here for the uh, cube, um, and it's a very nicely done effect. Particularly because you're doing a, basically a cube with reflective surfaces that are reflecting cell animation. Which is, takes a bit of work to do. <laughs> and meanwhile, Layla is basically, her strategy is rush in and fight with brute force and massive ignorance. You know, yes. the, uh, the American way. <laughs> motorized unicycle with a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher. <laughs> Pretty much. Turns out it doesn't work well for her. Oh, to be fair, she probably didn't expect Meyer Link to block the rocket with his... to successfully block the rocket with his cape. 
Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have seen that coming myself, so fair play to her. And when she gets wounded by one of the hundreds of lasers in the laser cannons in the walls of the resting house, D chases after the uh, the coach on his own, and he discovers we got our first hint that maybe Charlotte might have actually gone with Meyer voluntarily, and like voluntarily, voluntarily, not not enthralled voluntarily, yeah. <laughs> precisely. And they kind of set up after this with this. We get our first big scene with Meyer. They kind of set up this sort of who mourns for a nice thing going on here with with Meyer going like after we're all gone, who will all, all we as in the vampires are all gone, who will actually mourn for us? Kind of thing. It kind of brings bloodlust a little closer to the romanticized view of vampires of the Anne Rice category. Like, oh yeah, yeah. But it's still we still get some monstrous stuff in here, both from the people that that Meyer Link deals with to our final sort of antagonist that make it clear that yeah, Meyer Link's okay, but the majority of vampires are dicks <laughs> or worse. Yeah, they're... Yeah. Uh... Yeah. Vampires are dicks. <laughs> yeah. So, this gets us into um, Barbara Roy, and the death of the first member of the Marcus Brothers, Nolt. And also our first appearance of Dwight Schultz as Benji. <laughs> Dwight Schultz channeling Mark Hamill's performance as the Joker, in particular, as Benji. Now, Dwight Schultz, fan, tricky Thurdrick fans in the audience, you may recognize him as uh, Reginald Barkley. Fans of the A-Team might recognize him as Howling Mad Murdoch. I do kind of wonder, considering that he had the, that of the characters on the A-Team, he probably had the most scenes with Mr. T of anyone else in the, move, in the show. I kind of wonder why Dwight Schultz didn't get a similar sort of career arc to Mr. T. Because he wasn't a big black guy with a mohawk and a lot of bling. I mean, Mr. T didn't really have a career. He more of had a shtick. That's... Whereas Dwight Schultz did have a career. That's <laughs> not a... that's fair. Yeah, Dw- Dwight Schultz. I mean, Dwight Schultz and John DiMaggio are probably the two of the hardest working actors in this movie in terms of sheer number of roles. Yes. <laughs> uh, Schultz has Bengi and the old man of Barbaroy, who we'll meet shortly. Whereas John DiMaggio has John Elborn, the younger, the uh, older, the brother Nolt, who fortunately for John for John DiMaggio, he doesn't have to play anymore now because that character's dead. Oh, one of then one of the uh, Barbaroi, and then the sheriff who we'll get to uh, we'll get to meet later. But yeah, if if you want to imagine White Shaw's performance as Bangi, just just. just Go watch some Batman the Animated Series, watch a whole bunch of episodes with Joker, and just kind of imagine that. Because it's basically spot-on performance as far as Mark Hamill's Joker voice. It's kind of uncanny. I almost kind of wonder if, like, the direction in the booth for this was, Okay, Dwight, have you been watching um, Batman the Animated Series? Yeah. You know what Mark Hamill's doing with doing for the Joker? Uh-huh. Can you do that? Yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> So we also kind of set up that the Barbaroi sequence Barbaroi have these various various magical abilities and that sort of thing. Bengi can phase in and out of shadows and stab people through their shadows. It's kind of an an, an interesting little call out to maybe not as so much Ninja Scroll itself in that way, but the book that Ninja Scroll is based on in terms of these these really creepy 
murderous magical abilities that really lend themselves to major suspense. Remember, remember a, a visual suspense as opposed to just a little narrative written suspense because you have you as the audience you can see where all the shadows are and where all the shadows are in relation to everything else and so you you, you get the big picture of how in danger these people are and that sort of thing where in a book it's maybe not as easy to get across it definitely uh helps that this is a visual medium yeah Bengi also can create very sophisticated illusions. And the one thing which which gets across a little better in the book, but doesn't get across quite as well in the movie, is Bengi can create four-dimensional traps, like sort of Tesseract traps, which D gets caught in for a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, we, we see D get caught in it, but in the book they kind of get across better that D, that because this is a four-dimensional trap, the, there are effects of D breaking out that cause other effects, like ripples in the time stream, like D's breaking out of Bengi's fourth dimensional trap causes the disappearance of all of the crew of all, everyone on board the Mary Celeste, for example. Not the Daleks, as in Doctor Who. <sighs> uh, to be fair, that was a first Doctor story, so... So, the... So the Marcus brothers get this get the setback of losing a member of their team and getting pushed back, while D makes his way to the Barbaroy and meets with the old man of the Barbaroy, again, played by Dwight Schultz, and we kind of get a bit more with um, the fact that D's sire, D's father, was Dracula. The fact that makes the Barbaroy go, hey, we've been paid to protect the carriage. We When we make a contract, we follow the contract. We don't break that for anyone, but if we were to break it for somebody, it would be you because of your dad. <laughs> yeah, there. Yes, there, there's some indication. The Barbaroi were all create, or they're all half-human monsters, uh, created by the nobility. With some indication, it was straight up Dracula that did it, because throughout the novels, he is his character is portrayed throughout the novels. We never see him, but it's always through stories, both as a monster and as a savior, and always sort of as a scientist. So, yeah, <laughs> the it seems like the Barbaroi are sort of were created by D's dad. <laughs> Also, there's just this one hilarious bit where, you know, they paid us a hundred million dollars. Can you beat that? If I could. <laughs> I'm just like, huh, how much money are you carrying? <laughs> well, to a certain degree, I mean, the book's kind of set up that D doesn't have a lot of things to spend money on. I mean, he's just a wandering vampire hunter. And in, in the books, they kind of set that there are many, that there's like sort of, only what I call the, the true blood stuff that, that Dampiers use to suppress the inst- the um, cravings for to drink blood. And he probably spends money on that. That's probably not cheap. But other than that, he doesn't have, you know, a house. He doesn't have a sort of home base he goes back to. He doesn't have to... I mean, it's really not clear what the overhead is for being a wandering man-with-no-name-esque vampire hunter in post-apocalyptic, more post-post-apocalyptic Earth in the far future. So, at this point, we finally get to see Grove's special ability, which is basically, he can get put in a death-like state, astrally project himself, and kill people with with holy mind lasers. Yeah. And it's killing him. And to do this kills, uh, is slowly killing him. Yeah. Like, in, like, when we see Grove, when, he, when he's getting the injection into him, um, we kind of get to see his upper torso, and he looks like he should be in hospice care. He looks like a very late-stage cancer patient or HIV patient. 
he he's very wasted away and skeletal, which doesn't really travel up to his face. It like stops at his neck. Now even then his face is kind of gaunt. Yeah, it's gaunt, but it's not like more gaunt than the like thin anime character gaunt. Yeah, that's whereas true. his his chest is like it's the skin is hanging off the bones. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because also with the way the Ashley projecting grove is, is depicted is he looks happy. It's like he has this sense of intense bliss, which is different than or, or as normally where he is very and gloomy and depressed, kind of. And it's also kind of interesting because when Grove shows up, Dee had actually met, almost managed to talk his way out of the potentially massive fight he was going to get himself in. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, not quite. I had this, you guys. <laughs> but, well, yeah, he had it, but the Marcus brothers would have had to do it anyways. So. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> so this leads to our uh, kind of a couple of action sequences where we have D, who's caught in sort of the tesseract trap, and then the Marcus brothers chasing the coach and the three Barbaroi who are hired to protect it: uh, Bengi, uh, Caroline. And the Beastman, uh, Mashira, who is the th- third role played by John DiMaggio in this movie. Did they get him, like, at a bulk rate? <laughs> I, I swear it must have been, like, uh, John, half the actors backed out. Can you do their parts? <laughs> I heard a rumor, uh, discussed on this, on Paul Thomas Chapman's Greatest Movie Ever podcast, they were talking about this movie. They had the suspicion that this is actually all meant to be kind of a temp track, that they'd actually meant to get a broader theatrical release after picking up a major distributor and getting some big-name actors on this. Maybe not quite going the full Miyazaki route, route, but maybe closer to the um, Armitage III route with, like, Kiefer Sutherland and that sort of thing on the voice cast. But, I mean, for what it's worth, while the actors they got weren't super big names, the actors they got were really good. So, uh, anywho... We kind of, we learn Caroline's ability, which is kind of she kind of has an a absorbing man ability from Marvel like from Marvel comics, where we, we mainly see her in her big fight scene. It's plants, but here she merges with the metal in the undercarriage of the uh, Marcus's battle wagon and uses it to send basically metal spikes up through the floor to try to kill everybody. It doesn't really work, but it takes the the vehicle out of action. Yeah, the Marcus's vehicle, which is halfway between a train engine and a tank. Pretty much. And this leads to the big fight between the Marcuses and Bengi. And I kind of, I was watching the movie, I realized, all things are, we see the Marcuses fight much more Barbaroi than D does. At least to a final conclusion of the fight. Because we have... The Marcuses get to take on Bengi, who killed one of them, who, who killed Nolt before, and they're able to take out Bengi in a very well done fight. It, it, like, this is a kind of fight which, which the sequence before in the graveyard with the ghouls showed that the, uh, Marcuses were competent. This scene with where they fight Bengi shows that the Marcuses are dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that this is really... Uh, previously, when we'd seen the Marcuses fight, we saw they were powerful and skilled. This fight really shows they're really good at fighting smart. Mm-hmm. Well, the surviving ones are good at fighting smart. <laughs> yeah. So, 
at which point um, the mar- the uh, both the Marcuses and D are kind of out of transportation for a bit. The uh, Marcuses need to get replacement fuel tanks and fuel for their vehicle, and D's cyber- cyborg horse is dead, so he has to go get a new one. So they head to the ta- so Kyle, Layla, and D all end up in basically the next town. And to dissuade D from following them, she um, Layla tries to get the town to turn on D to because he's a, he's a down fear to make it so he can't buy a horse. And it kind of leads to a really neat scene. Um, again, this also leads to role number four for John DiMaggio, um, the sheriff of this town, and also a big role for a big dialogue scene for John Hostetler as the old Hostetter for the old man, looking up John IMDb and the ANN Encyclopedia. I mean, the voice is, a, is your standard old man voice, pretty much. But uh, Hostetler, he, he's a big character actor, done lots of voice acting work. Like, oh, among other things, he's done... Oh, boy. He's done cat voice acting for Cat for the English dub for Castle in the Sky. In fact, a lot of these people in this movie did voice acting for the English dub of Castle in the Sky. He's done, like, lots of little bit character acting roles, not just in voice acting but in various live-action films and TV shows. Like, he was in, like, 65 episodes of Murphy Brown. And a couple episodes of MacGyver and The Flash and that sort of thing. Oh, man, The Flash. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this is the live-action The Flash. The old live-action The Flash. Yeah, with John Wesley Ship. Yep. And also, bring back Golden Connections, had, which had Mark Hamill in it. Yes, Mark Hamill as the trickster. Yep. A role he would later reprise in Justice League Unlimited. Mm-hmm. And so we have the scene where D is trying to buy a horse, and the posse comes in to confront him. And basically, the old man says, "Hey, for lack of for long story short, he basically recounts the Cliff Dotes version of the previous Vampire Hunter D novel, Razor of Gales, more or less. And basically says that he's one of the kids who D rescued from the vampires in that story, and that hey, D kind of got." done dirt in that story the town owes him i owe him i'm not gonna let you screw him over like this and it, it's kind of awesome it's it, one of the scenes where we really accept just how old d is not exactly how old but that uh, how, how much older he is and um the uh and how much um, possibly how long just how long he's been dealing with the anti fear prejudice and that sort of thing other nice little bit here is it also kind of sets up the epilogue to a certain degree here as well but we'll get, we'll get into that when we get into the epilogue. I do have a thing here where there's a, sometimes in this movie, this is kind of a Yoshiaki Kawajiri thing. For the works by Kawajiri and his protégés, sometimes they do, the, they do the, the small elements of facial expressions really well, but other times his characters, the facial in, in his films, the facial expressions don't match the emoting by the voice acts. And this is particularly a thing, this, in some cases both with not just like an English dub thing with how the English voice actors choose to embellish the emotions of the characters in a particular way with their performance, but even like the Japanese versions, where the Japanese cast will emote one way, and the characters just won't emote, facially, and <clears throat> this kind of happens a few places here, and it's it, particularly more notable, because especially in this film, I think, because this was a U.S. sort of production first, and the English dub was put together first, normally the, the first dub doesn't get the animation to look at, because the animation is still in process, but consequently the animation can is able to adjust performances to reflect the way the actors play the role. This is particularly notable for things like, for example, 
Disney's Aladdin, Walt Disney's Hercules, for the characters of Hades, <clears throat> of Hades and Hercules and the genie in, Al- in Aladdin, Robin Williams as the genie, because of the amount of improv and that sort of thing going on there. And they used that to, they really put a lot of work into making those characters very expressive, which they couldn't have done if they'd animated the characters and then um, before the actors had a chance to, do the, to breathe life into the role. And so this, we get a bit of kind of both of that here, where on the one hand, the old man is fairly expressive. His emotions are, his, his expressivity is, is the, is small things, not big broad strokes as you occasionally get in anime, particularly comedy anime, but it's, he is expressive. It, it's, and it's animated well. But on the other hand, some of Kyle's emotion, he's ta- uh, how his, he facially emotes when talking to Layla doesn't quite work. It kind of comes across as kind of blank. And it drives me out to a certain degree. I don't know if you've noticed this with, with any of Kawajiri's other stuff. Yeah, it's... Well, a number of times, you know, they'll do the ref- the recording before all the f- animation is finished. So, yeah, as you said, you know, they can work with that, you know, get some more. But, yeah, I noticed there's a lot of things that just sort of... It fell flat in a number of points in this film. And in some of his other work as well. We get our next confrontation with the carriage after this after D gets his horse at some ruins where Caroline and Mashiba have stopped to, or uh, Mashira, whatever, have stopped to water the horses. Because cyborg horses need water too. And I like the scene. The, the ruins here where they're, at, where they're watering the horses at remind me a lot of the ruins near the lake at in the movie Castle of Cagliostro. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And this leads anyway to the fight with Caroline, and we the first big bing, first big look at not that look, but they've teased before this, and it pays off here of uh, that. Dat fears while they can go out in the sun, which vampires can't do, they are sub- subject to what's called heat syndrome, which is like an extreme version of heat stroke, where in order to recover, you basically have to bury yourself at least shallowly, and so. D kind of gets cut by this partway through the fight, and so he isn't really able to finish off Caroline, which means it's up to Layla to finish her off, which makes two points for Team Marcus and technically still zero for D, which is kind of impressive. He's a vampire hunter. They're not vampires. I don't think it's even on his scoreboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. This is where we get the bigger sort of emotional, emotional but narrative backstory for Layla, where she kind of she gets caught in a rainstorm and kind of takes shelter where she's buried, where she's helped D bury himself because D earlier bandaged her wounds, kind of they were even, and she kind of spills her life story to D, and also kind of gets a promise, uh, to, to do a promise of whichever one dies first, the other one will buy them flowers at, for their grave because neither one expects to have any sort of. The whole vampire hunter life is kind of a solitary life and tends to lead to messy deaths. So, particularly messy deaths in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, I'm just wondering, you know, what was her plan if, if you know, D died first? D, to hear the Dunpeel Hunter's dead. Really? Where? Like 200 miles from here. All right, I'll get some flowers. <laughs> 200 miles from here in the middle of a barren wasteland. Actually, technically, about a couple thousand miles away from the nearest place that actually has flowers. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe FTD is still around and they've just gotten really hardcore. <laughs> FTD florist delivery is like the new Pony Express. <laughs> Can you take a letter? Uh, is it 140 characters or less? No. Sorry, I can't do it. 
All right. Um, right. Uh, what if I can do it hard for characters? Okay. What type of flowers would you like to go with this letter? <laughs> Here lies D. Now he's dead. <laughs> so we get the next fight with the um, last of our Barbaroi, Machira, where the um, Marcus brothers actually set up a fairly impressive ambush on the carriage, and it almost works. They just kind of fail to account for the fact that Machira sort of has X-ray vision. The plan is, is the carriage has to go across the bridge. And there as well. So you just plant explosives underneath the bridge, and that cuts them off. You then get them to turn over the girl, and then you blow up the bridge around the carriage once you're done. The problem is they take too much time sending, basically, after they get the girl, they take too much time sending off the explosives. And, again, they fail to account for Machira having X-ray vision, which lets him see where the bombs are. And then when Machira flees off the carriage under the over the side of the bridge and goes in the water, they assume, oh, oh, he's totally out of the fight now. Not, oh, he's a Barbaroi. He could, you know, climb up the side of the bridge find the, and find the bombs. <sighs> yeah, well... They were admittedly having fun. Well, when they, because they do successfully grab Charlotte because of this. And then Meyer Link comes out into the sun after her. And so they're just having fun shooting him. Shooting him, mocking him. At this point, actually, Charlotte's like about to kill herself if she can't be with uh, Meyer Link because, uh, with one of the Marcus brothers' own arrows. And then Machira shows back up, kills Kyle. Off, off panel, off screen. Well, somewhat off screen. We, yeah. we, we, all of a sudden we see Kyle get like these big gouges in him. Yeah. And he goes down. And so Borgoff realizes just how badly things have gone, leaps off the bridge, hits the detonator, and then discovers that all the bombs have been taken off the bridge and placed in the river below him. Yeah. So that's pretty much a, t- a complete failure for uh, Team Marcus. This leads finally to the, um, our final confrontation, uh, and the, the place where climax of the movie, the castle of Carmilla, basically the castle of Camilla, the kind of the first vampire of fiction, who managed to successfully, who we learned through um, narration by uh, Left Hand, managed to successfully P.O. Dracula so much that Dracula just killed her and kind of in, imprisoned her in the ca- in the. Uh, castle with his sword through her uh, chest. Yes. Uh, it should be noted that Carmilla and the resulting castle is created completely whole cloth for the film. It is not in the book. And it makes for a vastly improved final act. Absolutely. And the castle looks extraordinary. It's, it is like, if you build a fortress modeled after gothic cathedrals, with the spires and the buttresses and all that sort of stuff, it looks extraordinary. It's the castle from the Castlevania video games wishes it was Carmilla's castle. Yeah. It is just extraordinary. Uh, the castle is called the Castle of Chafe in the script. And this, this is this is really great. Carmilla looks extraordinary. Uh, her look reminds me a lot of some of the visuals we have for Dracula in the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula movie. Uh, some designs by which were in of itself, kind of character designs were done by um, Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame, and it just it just looks amazing. And this is where we kind of learn the twist, which this is this is actually one massive trap, not for the Marcus brothers, not for D, but for Charlotte and Meyer Link, because 
Carmilla has been, her, her ghost has been trapped in this castle for hundreds of years, not thousands of years. She'd really like out, thank you very much. And she wants to use Charlotte's blood to do it. And so she set up this massive basic plot to get to Charlotte and get, to, to get Charlotte here. And so she can take all her blood, resurrect herself and be free. And there's lots of great little clues for this. If you, I know it's, it's like my, my, my fifth time watching a movie. And I see all these little clues earlier, whether it's musical clues, like using bits of Carmilla's theme earlier in the movie, to the fact that we see Carmilla's letter earlier on before we learn they're going to her castle. Or rather, we have the letter and it's signed C. It's kind of clearly from Carmilla. And it's just, it's, it's a very well done twist. And it's when, I, mean, I, I kind of saw it coming. I mean, once we learn, oh, it's the castle of Carmilla and we learn of her reputation, you kind of know, okay, this is the actual big bad of the movie. But still, it's, again, it's another great example of the movie messing with your perspective and your perceptions. Yeah. You expect the final showdown between Meyerlink and D, and really you don't get it. You get this new, boom, big bad. <laughs> yeah, final showdown is, is between D and Carmilla. You expect, oh, D is going to be rescuing the girl from the vampire, and she's going to, and, and D is going to have to force Charlotte to learn uh, Meyer Link's true nature. No, Meyer Link's true nature is he's actually a fairly nice guy. It's Carmilla who they have to be worried about. So we get this big kind of showdown here, and it's also nicely that Carmilla does a lot of stuff with illusion. And it lets me use Illusion to provide its sort of additional character development through the, the trap she lays for her victims, whether it's for, um, where it's Meyer Link's greatest fear being that Charlotte changes her mind, or Carmilla using Charlotte's desire to want to be turned into a vampire to trap her, to using Layla's tragic backstory of losing her parents and her, her the way she responded to that as a child against her, and Dee's own kind of resentment about being a damp fear against him, with also kind of laying the implication that part of the reason why he's so heavily pursuing Meyer, Link, and Charlotte is because he basically he's upset at the idea of another damp fear being created. Yeah, and... It works out really well to the point of from Carmilla's introduction, you really don't know what's real and what's not because it's not initially that we find out about her illusion abilities. That comes later, and then you have to go back and like, oh, wait, oh, wait, none of that was real. Mm hmm. Yeah, so, and her illusion powers really didn't work well on D. Yeah. I I think Dee ran to a couple of the people with illusion abilities in like the second book, too. So. Yeah. I mean, admittedly. This is the movie. We haven't seen the book. On the other hand, this is one of those cases where, because the book series is really big in Japan, which is... Actually, I don't know if we can go with that assumption here. Normally, when it comes to dealing with Japanese animation, you kind of have to take things into the context of did of if the Japanese audience has, ac has access to a thing that we don't have, but this thing is bigger in Japan, and this Japanese audience can be expected to know that thing, do we cut it slack for that? For example, the first Vampire Hunter DOVA doesn't spend much time explaining that the, that the series is a post-post-post-apocalyptic, post whereas the novel series has been a big hit in Japan, the audience would probably come into the movie, no, the OVA, knowing that. Yeah. Um, whereas here, this is a U.S.-Japanese co-production. The novels had not been released in the U.S. until after this movie came out. Yeah, like four years after. Not legally released in the U.S. until after these movies came out. Uh, this movie came out. 
So the U.S. audience wouldn't be expected to know that, oh, D's gone up against this sort of mind-affecting trick before. E. So, I don't know. Well, it could just be that D is, you know, incredibly strong of will, or that... Because the illusion that uh, Carmilla shows him is of his mother, so... Yeah, that's true. It could just be, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, that that's fair. D... Okay, got D and Layla together beat Carmilla. They also run into a problem of your your D your D goes in on his own. Layla and Layla and Borgoth go in on their own and leave Grove with with the tank, the, with the battle wagon. And Borgoth and Layla have the brilliant idea of let's split up. <sighs> with Borgoth checking out the catacombs and Layla checking out the upstairs, Borgoth gets taken down real quick by an illusion and gets turned. Which, which always confused me, because at this point, Carmilla is just, you know, just has her illusion powers. How exactly does Borgoth get turned? Because we, we see him with two clear, with the teeth marks clearly on his neck. So, what happened there? I mean, it's probably related the same way that, that, uh, that Carmilla is able to, maybe not turn, uh, Charlotte, but at oh, least... Oh yeah, but drain her. But drain her. It's probably related... Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably related to that. I mean, well, the bigger thing is the fact how, is how hard that that Borgoff falls for. Oh, the two guys who I saw killed and whose bodies I left behind me are now here in front of me and presumably alive. But then again, probably by this point, his mind is probably so broken. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not to mention, he's probably dealing with some pretty heavy blood loss. Yeah, between the blood loss and and his mind kind of broken by basically losing all but one of his brothers. And the one that's left is the dying one. <laughs> yeah. So, I can kind of guess come some slack for that. So, D breaks out of his illusion and then saves Layla from being killed by her by the illusion that's created for her. And then pretty handily takes out Borgoth. And then Layla... Well, no, he doesn't take out Borgoth because uh, Borgoth's... Uh, Grove. Uh... Oh, Grove takes out Borgoth. That's right. Gro- Grove basically kind of overdoses himself, sac- and then goes and sacrifices himself to take out the possessed Borgoth. You're right. My bad. To protect uh, Layla. Yeah. yeah. And then Layla and D together basically take out Carmilla with D with Layla taking out her physical form with her big gun, which basically shoots like sort of quantum singularities. Not quite, but like. I mean, the, the the effect they use is sort of like like small antimatter bullet kind of thing. Yeah. And basically, left hand kind of eating Carmilla's uh, spirit. Spirit, pretty much. Yeah. And we do get that one shot of D's like sword coming in, and overlaid on D is the uh, sword that his dad used to kill her the first time. Yeah. So. Indicating that he's sort of become his dad's weapon, or is as deadly as? I don't know. Yeah, either way works. <laughs> There's some symbolism there. Indeed. And after Carilla dies, the castle kind of starts to fall apart, which kind of makes sense. Normally when they do this sort of thing of the, the antagonist being a load-bearing boss, it's kind of silly and doesn't quite work. But here, you kind of get the idea that the castle was maintained by the sheer force of Carmilla's will, and when that's destroyed, the place is crumble, crumbles with it. Yep, and... We get we we get to see uh, Meyerlink taking Charlotte's body, and turns out there really was a functional cathedral rocket ship. <laughs> yeah. So that so they fly off into space, and now, the cathedral rocket ship is probably one of the few things, or one of the 
when they do 2D animation for the vehicles in this movie, as opposed to using a CG replacement where it falls flat, because some of the shots of the rocket going up don't look right. They look too flat. They look... They don't have the proper depth. Yeah, they don't have the proper depth. It's almost kind of like a Gilliam-imation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, from... You know, those, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, Gilliam-imation refers to the animation, sort of cutout animations done from Monty Python's Flying Circus. If you haven't watched Monty Python's Flying, Cir- Flying Circus... You really should. <laughs> Anywho, this finally leads to our epilogue, where after the end of the movie, uh, or at the end of the fight, basically, Layla's had enough of all this death and all this wasted life, and she's she doesn't explicitly say, after this, I'm done, I'm out. But it's didn't explicitly say that, but it's very clear that, that she, she's she's done. She's out. And so we, we cut forward basically about, like I'd say, 100 years is a reasonable guess. Some un- some undefined length of time. Yeah, and Layla has died and is being buried. It's actually neat how it's done, because we don't know it's a time skip right away. We just see a funeral. Um, and we previously set up that Dee had taken the ring, uh, Charlotte's ring, as proof of her death to take back to her parents. And so we could be thinking, oh, this is the funeral for Charlotte. But then we learned, oh, no, this is the funeral for Layla, who has retired from vampire hunting, become, and not just had married and had kids, but had grandkids. And we have... Basically, Layla's granddaughter come and ask Dee to come and join the funeral, and that oh, my dad would like to meet you, and that sort of thing. It's it's kind of a nice little touch. Yeah, and he's like, I just came because my friend asked me to, and she'd be so touched to know there are so many people who love. Yeah, and we get the the kind of best last line of the movie, which from left hand, which is, Oh, Dee, you're not bad. You just dress bad. <laughs> Let's us end on a smile. Yeah. Ah, <sighs> so overall. Really good movie. <laughs> really, really good movie. It is kind of a bummer that this movie got such a very poor theatrical release and that this movie hasn't been licensed rescued at all. The DVD company who put it out and who brought the theatrical release, Urban Vision, mentioned earlier, no longer exists. This is the kind of movie where I can see somebody like people who've been who've been rescuing like like Project Echo and So I mislaid my copy of Project Echo, but anyway. Uh, of, of the new DVD release of Project Echo. Uh, I can easily look this up. They've also handled the release of Fist of the North Star, and or re-release of Fist of the North Star, and various other movies. I believe they did the, the re-release of Mad Bull 34. I think it's Eastern... They have Eastern Star as the name. Yeah, they have Eastern Star listed as the name. But that doesn't look quite right. Uh, but anyway, um, they did... Uh, anyway, I could see them... License rescuing this, depending on how much it costs to ask to actually re-release it. It'd be kind of nice if they did, particularly because if they did do a re-release, they might be able to do a release that also had the Japanese audio on there as well. So if you want to compare and contrast, we can. Maybe even getting some of the Japanese bonus features. So, as far as this fared in the tournament, it did not fare well. It did not qualify for the round of 42, but mainly because of the about 60-something people who voted on it. Most of them had... 50-something people voted on it. Most of them hadn't seen it. Uh, yeah, 53 people voted on this. Three people voted at above average. Four people voted at average. Only one person voted at below average. And 45 people hadn't seen it. Kind of clear case of the people who saw it either either liked it or at least found it inoffensive, but otherwise they hadn't seen it. As it is, the, at the time where we put the um, our little spreadsheet together, the IMDb score for the movie was 7.7, which is a strong above average rating. Um... And as of this, as of today, um, I think it's about, still about kind of around the same, oh, sorry, 7.8. It's gone up a little bit. But it's generally a, 
It, it's a well-regarded movie. Um, it really helped bring the Vampire Hunter D franchise to a wider exposure in the United States, I think. Uh, if it weren't for this movie, we wouldn't have gotten the novel release and the manga and all that other stuff coming out in the U.S. It actually very nearly led to a U.S. Vampire Hunter D comic being put out. Called, oh, yeah. Uh, American was, Wasteland. Yep. It was original plan was for it to be um, drawn by Jimmy Palmiotti. Or sorry, written by Jimmy Pom, written by Jimmy Palmiotti, and drawn by Tim Seeley. Tim Seeley has, among other things, worked on the G.I. Joe comics for Devil's Due Publishing, and is currently working with Dark Horse on an ongoing series called The Occultist, as uh, writing it. But and unfortunately, it was meant to be a short, like six-issue series, but unfortunately uh, was canceled. I kind of would have been interested in taking a look at it just to see how it turned out, but uh, well, such is life. Uh, because certainly the sort of Western um, want, um, look to the series uh, that they have or some of the elements of it would be interesting. Sort of combining the Old West feel of some elements with the gothic horror, the nobility, and the vampire side of things. Ah, oh, well. So, I think more people should have seen this movie. I can understand why more people didn't see this, didn't see this movie. And unfortunately, the movie is out of print, and because Urban Vision is no more, it's going to be kind of hard to get a hold of. Like, and, like um, Right Stuff doesn't have any copies of it anymore. They are sold out. Oh, you can rent it digitally from Amazon. It's 3 bucks for a rental, um, 15 bucks to buy it. Um, but if you want to get the DVD, it'll cost you a little more. Like, a like-new copy of it. Oh, if you go used, it'll be dirt cheap. Oh, that's not so bad. If, you, if you're willing to get a used copy and hope and, and risk the chance that it's scra- that you're getting scratches, it probably won't be that bad. But if, you, if you're going for a like-new copy, it'll cost you a bunch more. Oh, I think that pretty much about covers it. Um, any final thoughts? Nope, I think we've covered everything. <laughs> All right. Well, being that this is October, we'll be having more horror films throughout the month of October. (laughs) Indeed. So both podcast reviews and print reviews on Bureau42.com. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at Bureau42podcasts at gmail.com and also post on the comments on the site. Please review us on iTunes and Stitcher and tell your friends about Bureau42.com. All the cool people are going there. So, once again, I'm Alex Case. I'm David Stark. Thank you very much for listening.